Sons of Liberty is a politically neutral organization. We believe that the Judeo-Christian ethic has provided the principles upon which this nation was founded. It is our belief that these principles provide not only the foundation and framework for American government and society, but are also essential to the maintenance of a fair and just society. All program content is based on a Christian biblical worldview. One of you said to me recently that we shouldn't rock the boat. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you that I am a boat Good day, America. Welcome, Christians, conservatives, constitutionalists, liberals, libertarians, communists, Islamists, LGBTQ, RSTV, WXYZ people. All the boat rockers are in the house and anybody else I may have missed to the Sons of Liberty radio show here on Red State Talk Radio, where we use the Bible and the Constitution not to see who's on the right or left, but who is on the straight and narrow. I'm your host, Tim Brown, coming to you live from the U.S. occupied state of South Carolina, the editor at SonsOfLibertyMedia.com. And for Muslim friends, I'm the infidel that Allah warns you about. I hold to the book, the Bible. As the authoritative word of God, glad that you guys have joined us this morning. If you'd like to check us out online, please do so. SonsofLibertyRadio.com and also SonsofLibertyMedia.com. In fact, if you're listening by way of Red State Talk Radio and you want to watch the video portion of the radio show, that's right, you can see the face that's made for radio, head over to SonsofLibertyMedia.com. And there at the top of the page, you'll see two videos. The one on the left side of the page is Bradley's show from yesterday. So he is uh, sharing some of the things that he learned there in Virginia at some of the places like Jamestown, Williamsburg, Yorktown. And uh, if you're joining on the video platform on Rumble at Sons of Liberty Radio Live, you'll actually see some of the images that they uh, captured uh, to share with you uh, some of our our cr very Christian heritage. Okay, um, so <clears throat> be sure and check that out. And then he will be live again in that area, Lord willing, 3 p.m. Eastern today, Left side of the page, sonsoflibertymedia.com. The right side of the page is where we're at. Click on the play button, blow it up whatever device you've got, and then look for the Rumble icon in the bottom right-hand corner. Uh, I'd love to see you guys over there in uh, in, in Rumble. Uh, we've got a lot of friends over there this morning. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us. And then um, be sure to subscribe to that channel. Again, it's Sons of Liberty Radio Live. We're also streaming live there as well as before it's news. Uh, at the top of the page there, there's two videos that they have up at the top of the page, at least right now. Uh, this afternoon, that'll be gone, but uh, they do give us that up until the, the afternoon, usually up until Bradley's show, usually. And then they, they kind of change things away. So be sure and check that out as well. Right up under where we're streaming live is where you can sign up for our email newsletter. Again, you get that once a day, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern, it goes out. And then if you want our ministry email, and again, you get some exclusive content this past week. We shared some of the images there from Virginia. So... I'm sure there's going to be more in the upcoming weeks. So sign up for that at sonsoflibertyradio.com, sonsoflibertyradio.com. Front page right there. Sign up for it. It goes out once a week on Saturdays usually is when we get it out. And uh, uh, yeah, that'll keep you up to speed as to what the Sons of Liberty are doing. Finally, if you agree with our message and you'd like to help keep us out there, there's a donate button at the top of the page, sonsoflibertymedia.com. You can click on that and make a one-time donation. Or you can partner with us monthly as a son or daughter of liberty. And we do appreciate you guys. Very, very much. Now, interesting. 
at every turn, and, and the only way I see it is because uh, my, one of my sons runs a little site for us called gunsinthenews.com. And uh, you see, it's not just D.C. that is attacking the people's right to keep and bear arms. And by the way, let me just stress this. Let's quit calling it our Second Amendment rights. They, they're not Second Amendment rights. The Constitution does not give us rights. Okay, it doesn't do it. Recognizes them. They're supposed to protect those rights, but they ignore it. And they attack it all around. I don't care if it's what everybody thinks is good. They attack it all around. Background checks. You know, you, you can't have, they, they swap things up. You can have an echo trigger. You can't have an echo trigger. You can have a bump stock. You can't have a bump stock. It's none of their business. It's not their business to tell us what we can and cannot have when it comes to arms. You can't have a 12, you know, a knife over 12 inches, or if it's a log blade over three inches, it's not their business to do that. And the Second Amendment's pretty clear in that. Shall not be infringed. Arms. Any kind of arms. And yet, daily, we see it, not only from D.C., we're seeing it in the States. You can't even get the states, even southern states in many cases, to recognize there is to be an unimpeded, you know, hands-off approach to arms. There's nothing to fear from those who uphold the, who uphold the law in their lives, and I'm talking about the moral law of God. There's nothing to fear from those people, unless you're doing something bad. And if you're breaking the law, then there is something to fear. Okay? So I want to take us back in time just a little bit. Um, I did an <clears throat> article years ago on how our forefathers dealt with those who came to try to take their arms. And we're going to take a look at that today. But what I want to do is I want to start off. Um, Chuck Baldwin was taking the Southern Baptist to task this week, or this past week, uh, in his article that he wrote, and uh, just just to let you know, even in our system that we're in, I'll draw the application of, you know, a beast system. You've got a political system. You've got a religious system that works alongside each other to drive the people towards godlessness is what it does. And here's the Southern Baptist. Um, he, well, listen to what he does. This is what he calls out, okay? He says, once again, evangelicals are proving themselves to be absolutely worthless in the preservation of our God-ordained liberties. This time, it is the Southern Baptist Convention. We usually, uh, this, is, uh, this is what the Southern Baptist Convention says. We us while usually quiet on the gun debate, in other words, offering no resistance to burgeoning anti-freedom gun control measures, Southern Baptists have now spoken out about the need for more aggressive firearm policies after the Covenant school shooting. See that? See how they work right along with the Mockingbird media? Oh, yeah, we need to do this because we're too spineless and milquetoast to get our own guys to use the rights they have and stand up and be men and protect their women and their children and the elderly and those who are within their congregations. We're too, we're too milquetoast for that. Jesus wouldn't do that. What would Jesus do? Jesus wouldn't carry a gun. That's, that's, how, they, that's how they respond. Brent Leatherwood, president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission within the Southern Baptist Convention. I don't know how they get such unbiblical, godless men to
to lead this ethics and religious liberty commission. I mean, they've had several of these guys that are just bad. He wrote an open letter to Governor Bill Lee, House Speaker uh, Cameron Sexton, and every member of the legislator, uh, legislature about his stance. He has three children who attend the Covenant School. Not only does he deal with the SBC, Leatherwood previously worked in politics where he was the executive director of the Tennessee Republican Party. Well, maybe this will explain some things. The topic of gun legislation has become a powerful tool in the Tennessee General Assembly. Governor Bill Lee proposed a red flag law last week in a press conference alone. No members in the supermajority of the Republican Party have surged forward to take the lead on legislation, nor stood with him in the press conference. Leatherwood said he supported Lee's efforts. And he reminded the assembly that Southern Baptists comprise more than one-fifth of the state's population. So what? So what, Mr. Leatherwood? I don't care if they comprise one. What they should be doing is that they're one-fifth of the state's population. They should be upholding the law that protects your liberties and the liberties of your people. Leatherwood wrote, This proposal restrains evil. Nonsense. No, it doesn't. It doesn't restrain evil. It opens the floodgates for the state to attack those who are lawful. That's exactly what it does. It doesn't restrain any evil. The guy is out to lunch here. Yes, it is true we live in a world tainted by terrible acts and deeds. Yeah, and it's only going to be good men, good godly men, who uphold their rights to defend others, and we're going to see that in a minute from the scriptures, okay? Who will stop those evil? That's what will restrain the evil. The only other thing that's going to restrain it is God changing their hearts. That's it. So our first weapons are not, are not carnal. Our second weapons are carnal in stopping the evildoer. It is true we live in a world tainted by uh, terrible acts and deeds, but that is never an excuse for inaction. Well, I agree. Where's your guys at in your, in your church who are going to defend? Huh? Instead of attacking everybody's rights through red flag laws, which violate virtually all of the Bill of Rights, why don't you teach your people how to use their rights? While it may not prevent every instance of this sort of violence, it's not going to prevent any of them. It will prevent some. No, it won't. That's, that's your opinion. Show me the data that is going to stop it. The chick that, that, that did the shooting at Covenant School bought all her arms legally. Didn't she? Yep, she bought several guns legally. Maybe what you want to start doing, Mr. Leatherwood, is start, up, is start demanding that the law be applied to these LGBTQ, RSTV, WXYZ people the way they are on the books. Or better yet, why don't you start dealing with the law, uh, the law against them in the way the Bible says that it should be dealt with? And believe you me, if you start doing that, you won't even see these people. They're going to go either they're going to clean their closet or they're going to come or they're going to go back in it. And we're not going to hear from them. It's one or the other. You start doing that and you'll start clearing up the problem. Problem has nothing to do with guns. It has to do with the wicked hearts of men. And the only way to deal with the wicked hearts of men is with a superior gospel than the rest of the world has, including government, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the savior of sinners. 
That's the only way to deal with it. Otherwise, you're left at the mercy of whatever they want to do. And at that point, the, the gospel is not going to do it. It's going to be you defending them. It's going to be you defending your loved ones, your neighbors, even strangers around you from those who want to murder. And the Bible is very clear. Exodus 20 tells us you shall not kill or you shall not murder. That's what it really means. It doesn't mean you don't take a life in a, in a, a, a capital punishment. That's not what it means. It means you don't murder. You as the individual don't have the right to go and murder people. You don't. And so he says, it will, it will prevent some and thereby save innocent lives. That should be more than enough reason to advance this proposal. Well, this guy obviously uh, is a hireling. He is somebody who does not understand that these things don't stop. They don't stop the evildoer. It's the same thing that we had when we heard from Donald Trump. I was just, when he says, we take the guns first, then we'll give you due process. Clear violation of the Fifth Amendment, that's for sure. And yet, people applaud it. Or people try to tell me today, Trump really didn't say that. That was edited. Nonsense. Quit worshiping men. Uphold the law. Okay? Quit doing that stuff. Anyway, with that said, um, there was a a guy years ago, Jonas Clark, and he had a sermon that he gave to his congregation, April 19th, 1775. Uh, British and American soldiers had exchanged fire in Massachusetts. We're going to talk a little bit about that this morning in the Massachusetts towns of Lexington and Concord. They did so in response to the midnight ride of Paul Revere. And you guys remember what he was warning about? Oh, the British are coming, the British are coming. Yeah, but what are they coming for? They're coming for your arms. They're coming for your cannons, your, your, your gunpowder, your muskets, whatever's at the armory. They're coming for them. And so, as we'll see... The, the men rushed out, gathered up all the armaments, and had them to themselves, not leaving them for the British to get. Why? Because the British are going to take it, then they're not going to have anything to defend themselves with. And that'd be foolish, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be foolish? Yep, that'd be foolish. But, but Mr. Leatherwood probably would think that's a good idea, that the British took all the guns, because then the citizens couldn't kill each other. Just the British could kill them. <laughs> I mean, that's the thinking here. Or the lack of thinking, I should say. So Jonas gave a a message um, concerning that, and I read this on uh, September the first, twenty twenty, on the air. Read the sermon, so I'll have that link up in the archives later on this morning if you're interested in hearing that. It's really quite telling how this pastor prepared his men, and then how he praised their courage to defend others uh, and what they did. But let's go back a little bit. Let's go back to 1773. And um, in 1773, December 16th, the Sons of Liberty in Boston made a political protest of the tax policy of the British government. Remember that? The East India Company, uh, the tea and all that. And then you had several of these guys, uh, anywhere from 30 of them to 130 of them, they dumped 342 chests of tea into the sea over the course of three hours. 
and they were they disguised themselves as Indians. Okay, but they wanted to make sure that everybody understood. Yeah, we're not putting up with this. And it was over a very, 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 very small tax. Very small tax on tea. And you think about the taxes we pay on stuff today. It's absolutely out of control. Really is. As a result of the protest, that's what they called the Boston Tea Party, a Parliament, with the direct encouragement of King George, passed something known as the Coercive Acts or they were also known as the Restraining Acts. Okay, They did that the following year. Um, here, here's what those acts are. Excuse me. The Boston Port Act, the Quartering Act, the Administration of Justice Act, and the Massachusetts Government Act. They want them to sound like they're lawful, like they're good and they're, they're right and they're holy and all this other stuff. But what happens is, is just like today, they use the phrases that sound lawful and majestic and right and everything, but contained in them, they're undermining the people's rights. They're usurping authority to government. And again, you just continue to grow a beast by letting them go down this road. And you'll see a lot of the stuff that's going on here in the 1700s that we're going to talk about that's going on today in our land. So, there were guys like uh, Edmund Burke, uh, Lord Chatham, and they said that such legislation would not be wise and would only provoke colonists more. That's exactly right, and that's what it did. That's exactly what it did. Because these colonists heard what was going on and determined they would fight and die rather than see such laws enforced upon them by the British Army. The men up in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, I know some of you guys are up there in Pennsylvania listening. Here's what they resolved to do. According to David Copel, quote, that in the event of Great Britain attempting to force unjust laws upon us by the strength of our arms, our cause we leave to heaven and our rifles. Isn't that interesting? In the event of Great Britain attempting to force unjust laws, they, they weren't talking about if they come and get our, try to get our guns. What they were talking about is if you write laws and try to pass them. That's what they're talking about. They weren't waiting until the law was written, somebody goes through a court process after people have been killed or you know their, their guns taken or any of this stuff. They said if you try to write the law, these unjust laws, Upon us by the strength of arms, our cause we leave to heaven, to God. We're going to appeal to him. And we're going to do our duty. We're going to take up arms against you. Interestingly, a South Carolina newspaper essay, which was reprinted in Virginia at the time, recorded that any law that required the military to enforce it was, quote-unquote, necessarily illegitimate. That's exactly right. If you have to... Use force to enforce your law, which is not moral law. We're not talking about the ten. We're not talking about the Ten Commandments here. Okay, you got to force that on people at the barrel of a gun. That's not real. It's illegitimate. That's what they're saying. It's necessarily illegitimate. So what was going on when Massachusetts, the governor there, General Thomas Gage, 
forbid town meetings from taking place more than once a year. Can you imagine that? Now, if you remember when we went back to uh, Brent Winters when he was on the show and we talked about the assembly or the ecclesia or the ecclesia, depending on how you want to say it. The church, how it's translated church in the New Testament. The, the ecclesia is the assembly. It's the people of God. And yet they were allowing the people of God to only come together in these town meetings once a year. Remember, it's their government. It's their government. So, when an illegal meeting, that's another one that was more than once a year, was taking place in Salem, this guy Thomas Gage, the governor there, he sent in the British Redcoats to break it up. They were met, listen to this, they were met with 3,000 armed Americans, and they retreated. Let me say it again. The British Redcoats were sent in to break up the assembly. 3,000 armed Americans showed up to run them off, and they did. Gage's aide named John Andrews said that anyone in the area that was 16 years or older owned a firearm and had gunpowder. If they, if they were 16 or older, they needed to own a firearm and had gunpowder. If you are wondering, yes, this is where the issue of the First Amendment came from, just one of the many places, and where town hall meetings originated. You know, this is the freedom to assemble. By the way, just a little, this is a freebie for you. This means that you can assemble with who you want to and not assemble with who you don't want to. It's why, in my mind, I have a hard time with people uh, who want to talk about the push to uh, for, for segregation and such. If Look, if there's men for whatever sake of conscience or even of wickedness, they're going to say, I don't want to associate with these people over here for certain skin color, or they wear certain clothes. or They have the right to do that, to not assemble with them to not invite them to their house, to not go to theirs, to not go to their places of business. They have the right to do that if that's what they want to do. And the same thing applies when there are legitimate, lawful, ethical things too. Government's not to force people to do that. That's protected under the First Amendment too. Okay? So, with that in mind, the British had realized they couldn't control the people with just the mere troops that they had. They only had about 2,000 troops there in Boston, and they couldn't do it. So what did they do? They sought to eliminate the people's ability to fire on them by taking their firearms and their, their gunpowder, their cannons and such. And so you had these Minutemen who were trained. Some of you, many of you learned this, I assume, unless you're really young. I don't know, I don't know if the younger generations are learning this or not, but the Minutemen were just regular old Joes out there. They were just the men of the community, and they trained together to be ready at a minute's notice to respond to things like this, where the British are going to come in, and they're going to try to break up a town hall meeting, or they're going to try to quarter troops, or they're going to try to you know, do whatever they do. These Minutemen were ready at a moment's notice with their own weapons, ready to defend. Oh, God give us Minutemen again today. 
those who train in such a way and can function together as a corporate group in order to defend against tyrants and their pawns. So, on September the 1st, 1774, just before dawn, Gage sent approximately 260 redcoats up the Mystic River to see several hundred barrels of powder from the Charleston Powder House, and it became known as the Powder Alarm. The Powder Alarm. The militia at the time produced 20,000 men. <laughs> Sorry, I still have this little stuff in my chest. It's more in my chest than anything, so I apologize for the cough here. They had 20,000 men who mobilized and began to march toward Boston. The American colonists believed that if the British were going to use force or violence or to seize arms or powder, it was an act of war. Now, I wish Americans would pick up on that today, modern Americans, that when they come to try to take your gun for a red flag law or they try to take your gun in you know, any of this, any kind of mass confiscation or anything like this, We've seen some of this out in California where these guys are going around all these houses and they're just taking people's weapons. That's an act of war. It's an act of war. You're depriving men of the ability to do their duty before God. And we're going to look at what that duty actually is in just a bit. Okay, So just keep that in mind. Again, going back to David Copel, he wrote, five days after the powder alarm on September the 6th, the militia of the towns of Worcester County assembled on the Worcester uh, Common. Backed by the formidable array, the Worcester Convention took over the reins of government and ordered the resignations of all militia officers who had received their commissions from the royal governor. The officers promptly resigned and then received new commissions from the Worcester Convention. That same day, the people of Suffolk County, which includes Boston, assembled and adopted the Suffolk Resolves. The 19-point Resolves complained about the powder alarm and then took control of the local militia away from the royal governor by replacing the governor's appointed officers with officers elected by the militia and resolved to engage in group practice with arms at least weekly. So there you have your first National Guard without it being a National Guard. It's a real constitutional militia. It's the men of the community who are gathering together and they're engaging in practice at least once a week. Okay? So they were faithful to do that. And why did they do it? Because their liberty depended upon it. The First Continental Congress, which had just assembled in Philadelphia, unanimously endorsed the Suffolk Resolves and urged all the other colonies to send supplies to help the Bostonians. Governor Gage directed the Redcoats uh, to begin general warrantless searches for arms and ammunition. According to the Boston Gazette, of all General Gage's offenses, what most irritated the people was seizing their arms and ammunition. That's David Copel. So again, you can see why the Second Amendment was written as well. In fact, when you go through here and you begin to read what was going on at the time, when you go down through the Bill of Rights, it's almost like what they wrote were the very things 
were this, these tyrants were violating them. Housing troops in their houses, coming in without warrants to search their houses and their possessions and their papers, taking their stuff without any kind of indictment. First, second, third, fourth, fifth amendments. All these are right there. And you can see why they wrote them. The Massachusetts Assembly convened so that the representatives could reassemble as the quote unquote provincial Congress, end quote. Gage declared that the assembly uh, was illegal, and that didn't stop it. He just made a declaration it was illegal. Then on October the 26th, 1774, they adopted a resolution which condemned military rule and criticized Gage for, quote, unlawfully seizing and retaining large quantities of ammunition in the arsenal at Boston. So what was going on is they have a guy who he is just fine with taking weapons from them, but arming his guys with. See, that, that's, nothing's changed. Nothing's changed at all. Government is all, they're not anti-gun. That's not what they are. They're pro-gun. They're just pro-gun for them, for government, and agents of the state. They're not pro-gun for you and me, the people they're supposed to serve. And until we teach them the lesson, until we take them and discipline them as little children, we bend them over the people's knee, if you will, and give them a good spanking, they're going to continue to do it like a bunch of little brats. That's what they're going to be. And that's what they are. So, two days after the letter was dispatched from Dartmouth, King George III in Parliament blocked the importation of arms and ammunition to Americans. Does that sound familiar to you, too? Yep. We've had administration after administration after administration try to tell us they're putting sanctions on a country like Russia, and they stop the importation of ammunition. They stop the importation of arms. They do all this stuff. And they put it under a banner. Oh, well, you know, we got to put sanctions on them. And sanctions are nothing but an act of war. That's what they are. And they don't do anything. They don't, do, at least not anything good. They give propaganda to your, your foreign country. They can look at their people and say, see what these Americans are doing over here? They're, they're the cause of all this. That's what they'll do. Oh, sure, it'll, it'll affect their economy a little bit. But they'll turn around and sell their arms or their oil or whatever they're going to sell. They'll sell it to somebody else. You see it all the time. And you can't stop it. Yet, that's what they try to do, though. So, this effectively blocked the arms and ammunition being imported to the colonies. Does this sound familiar to you guys? Yep, it surely does. Surely does. Uh, ben Franklin set out to import arms and ammunition from France, from Spain, and from the Netherlands. And while he was doing that, Paul Revere took to New Hampshire to warn of British ships approaching with the express purpose that they were going to be seizing those arms, cannons, the gunpowder at Fort William and Mary. 400 New Hampshire Patriots moved preemptively to capture those arms, and that was on December the 14th, 1774. A prominent New Hampshire paper at the time said the capture would both, was both prudent and proper. The paper doesn't even have a clue 
as to those arms are there to even to protect that paper and the rights of the press. They also reminded their readers of the ancient Carthaginians who consented to deliver up all their arms to the Romans and then overcome them soon after. And going back to David Copel, here's what he has to write. Or here's what he, he writes uh, in response to this and giving some insight. Quote, the British government was not, in a purely formal sense, attempting to abolish the Americans' common law right of self-defense. Yet in practice, that was precisely what the British were attempting. First, by disarming the Americans, the British were attempting to make the practical exercise of the right of personal self-defense much more difficult. Second, and more fundamentally, the Americans made no distinction between self-defense against a lone criminal or against a criminal government. To the Americans and to their British Whig ancestors, the right of self-defense necessarily implied the right of armed self-defense against tyranny, end quote. Again, that's David Copel. So what happened some months later? On March the 23rd, 1775, Patrick Henry gave that famous speech to the Virginia legislature. Remember that, right? Give me liberty or give me death. Well, listen, he also said this, too, in that speech. The millions of people armed in the holy cause of liberty. Let me say that again. The millions of people armed in the holy cause of liberty. And in such a country as that which we possess are invincible by any force which our enemy can send against us. the holy cause of liberty. And it requires arms to defend it. And that's what Patrick Henry had to say. And it's pretty powerful stuff. That convention that uh, Patrick Henry was in also included Richard Henry Lee, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, for example. And that committee uh, was put together to prepare a plan for the embodying arming and disciplining such a number of men as may be sufficient to defend their commonwealth. If you want to know why I brought up tacticalcivics.com over and over and over, that's what it's there for. The training first begins in the mind. It begins in the mind. You know, the Bible says that we're to be renewed or we're to be changed by the renewing of our minds. We once thought very earthly, very fleshly, now we're to renew our minds to conform to the Word of God. Okay? And then the same thing happens here. So in the, when, you, when you form a militia, when you're forming a body of men, let's call it that, a body of men who are going to be armed to defend their commonwealth, the first thing you got to do is change their mind. Because many of them are like, yeah, yeah, pew, pew, America, but how do we make that work together? They're fine with going out in the range and shooting their guns and stuff. They're fine with being even in sporting events and things like this with guns. But where's the real training that's going on that's going to make them a fighting unit against those who would seek to impose tyranny? Well, they had it set up for that. And here's what they said. is to prepare a plan for the embodying 
arming and disciplining such a number of men as may be sufficient to defend their commonwealth. The convention then urged that, quote, every man be provided with a good rifle and that every horseman be provided with pistols and holsters, a carbine, and other firelock. That's a far cry from what you hear today from those who are supposed to be our representatives, isn't it? They would say, no, 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 we, we, can't, we can't make sure that all these people are armed. We want to make sure as many of them are disarmed as we can. Fools, fools, that's what that is. That's just foolish. So, on April 19, 1775, British and American soldiers exchanged fire in the Massachusetts towns of Lexington and Concord. On the night of April 18th, the Royal Governor of Massachusetts, General Thomas Gage, commanded by uh, King George to suppress the rebellious Americans, had ordered 700 British soldiers under Lieutenant Colonel Francis Smith and Marine Major John Pitkern to seize the colonists' arms and gunpowder stores in Concord. And it was at Lexington Green that the British were met by approximately 70 just 70 American Minutemen led by John Parker. On the North Bridge in Concord, the British were confronted, this time by 300 to 400 armed colonists. This was not like a, I mean, there are small numbers in compared to the British, don't get me wrong, but this was not like, you know, five guys that got up and said, hey, we're going to go take this thing to them. But three to 400 people, men, armed, going out to meet the 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 largest army of the world at that time the one that domineered the western hemisphere here and so domineered that's dominated excuse me what in the world am i saying so all of these things were done and they came and were trying to take the people's weapons and the people weren't having it they stood up to them. So, on June the 19th, 1775, Gage finally gave an ultimatum to the Bostonians. He said, you're going to surrender all your arms. This sounds like Connecticut just a few years ago after the Sandy Hook incident, right? Surrender your arms or register them or whatever you're going to do. And he said, anyone found in possession of arms would be deemed guilty of treason. Treason! If you kept your weapons. Now, I don't know what a guy like that's thinking when he's already seen such a armed resistance by the people against the guys he's been sending. All I can see, as soon as they get their hands on him, they're going to kill him. That's, that's, what I'm, that's what I would be thinking. But just weeks later, the Continental Congress issued a declaration by the representatives of the United Colonies of North America, now met in Congress at Philadelphia, setting forth the causes and necessity of their taking up arms. That was in 1775. This here was written at that time by Thomas Jefferson and then Pennsylvania lawyer John Dickinson. Here's what they wrote. Quote, we are reduced to the alternative of choosing an unconditional submission to the tyranny of irritated ministers or resistance by force. The latter is our choice. We have counted the cost of this contest and find nothing so dreadful as voluntary slavery. 
honor, justice, and humanity forbid us tamely to surrender that freedom which we received from our gallant ancestors and which our innocent posterity have a right to receive from us. We cannot endure the infamy and guilt of resigning succeeding generations to that wretchedness which inevitably awaits them if we basely entail hereditary bondage upon them. And that's what he was saying. We can't stand down here. Posterity's at stake, and we don't want to lead our posterity into slavery. He continues, Our cause is just, our union is perfect, our internal resources are great, and if necessary, foreign assistance is undoubtedly attainable, With hearts fortified with these animating reflections, we most solemnly, before God and the world, declare that exerting the most, the utmost energy of those powers which are uh, beneficent, ah, my tongue, Creator hath graciously bestowed upon us the arms we have been compelled by our enemies to assume. We will, in defiance of every hazard, with unabating firmness and perseverance, employ for the preservation of our liberties, being with one mind resolved to die free man rather than to live as slaves. Now, if you remember Kurt Nemo, he used to be with InfoWars years ago. He was contributor to Sons of Liberty for a while. Here's what he wrote. The document was drafted after England sent soldiers to restore order in the colonies and the Second Continental Congress thought it necessary to raise an army and justify its actions. It also underscored the necessity to bear arms against tyranny, a concept that is almost entirely lost today as the United Nations conspires to register and confiscate the firearms of Americans and ill-informed citizens defend the Second Amendment as the right to own a gun for hunting. He adds, two days later, on July the 8th, 1775, the Olive Branch petition was issued. It proposed a final peace deal with England and promised loyalty to the British government if it repealed the coercive acts and ended its taxation without representation policies. Of course, we know what happened with that. And all of this was a continually building up to the war for independence. Why? Why? Because those who had been entrusted to govern were not governing. They were lording it over the people. They were engaged in tyranny against the people. So this this leads to a question that we have. And there's no question, you're you're hearing some of the things, if you're listening in the afternoon, you're you're hearing some of the the foundations, and what I'm talking about is, you know, your your 16, your 15, your 1400s. You're you're hearing about the Christian foundations of what is now the United States. Now, granted, we've gone way, you know, just apostatized towards that as far as government. I mean, we really have apostatized towards God through that. Yet, the foundations were this, just like in Israel, the foundations were the law of God. And so, what do we see here? Well, I know Mr. Wordsworth is going to love this in the chat. We have given to us the scriptures that talk about the use or the ability to take life. Okay? 
And I don't, I don't know what he, what there's a little, there's a little ditty that he came up with. He says, as long as there's a rainbow in the sky, the death penalty applies or something like that. Uh, forgive me if I got that wrong, but it's, it's something close to that. So we got this from Genesis chapter nine. You remember Noah and his family have made it through the flood. God has destroyed all flesh, but them and the animals that's on the ark. Okay. <laughs> And he does something interesting in verse 3. He says, every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you. Okay, so, so now they've gone from just, you got the bushes and the plants and the seeds, uh, the seed-bearing plants and the herbs and all that. Now you've got, you can eat meat. Even as the green herb have I given you all things. And then in verse 4 he says, but flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. And again, that carries over into the New Testament. Read um, Acts chapter 15 there where that's what they even told the Gentiles. Don't eat things that are strangled. That's what they mean by that. Don't eat the things with the blood in them, okay? That, that keep the blood in there. And surely your, your blood of your lives will I require. At the hand of every beast will I require it. So if a beast, you know, kills a man, that beast is to be put down. At the hand of every beast I'll require it, and at the hand of man. And at the hand of it, every man's brother will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. Now, I know there are people who say, well, Jesus did away with the death penalty. Didn't you see that thing that we talked about the other week with, you know, the stone of the woman? He didn't do away with the death penalty. He did away with hypocrites, but he didn't do away with the death penalty. In fact, when you go over, I think it's in Mark chapter 11. I want to say it, that's correct. Mark chapter 11, he speaks to the Pharisees of the day, and what he tells them is he says, well, wait a minute. You guys are talking about, you know, you, you've made uh, your, your, your money and your, your stuff, your, your produce and all this other stuff. You've, made, you've turned all that stuff into, quote unquote, Corbin, or it's set apart for God instead of taking care of mom and dad, which is your service, which is what you're supposed to do. That's what honor your mother and father means. Honor, from where we get the word honorarium. What's an honorarium? Is that, oh, mom and dad, I love you. Nope. That's taking care of them. Financially, if you got to do it. And he says, the one who curses mother and father, shouldn't he be put to death? That's Jesus' words. Why is that important? Because Jesus is the same one who gave the law in the first place. I don't know why people don't get this. He's the one who gave the law in the first place. He's the fulfillment of that law. And so, you know, look, when um, whatever, whatever went on with, between Cain and Abel in the beginning, whether it was a rock, a stick, a club, I don't know. We're just told that he murdered his brother. God didn't turn around and then say, okay, we need to get rid of whatever you used to kill your brother. Now he punished him by banning him, pushing him out. Sent him off into the land of Nod. But he didn't ban whatever it was he used to kill his brother. Might have been even his bare hands. Who knows? And you'll hear people, they come along and they'll say, Oh, well, wait a minute. Don't you remember the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus said, You've not you have heard not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek. Right? What are you going to do? Turn the other to him also. 
The thing is, is that Jesus is, there. there's this mixture of where people thought they could just take the law into their own hands. And what Jesus is saying is, no, 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 wait a minute. There's a difference between your individual conduct and how the law is to be carried out. Okay? And how the law is to be carried out, we've talked about that before. Two or three witnesses confirm a matter, right? You don't just go dealing with somebody. I mean, unless something's happening right in front of you and there's no other way to stop it, but you take their life, well, then you take their life. But overall, it wasn't an issue of you just go take somebody's eye because they took yours or they cut your hand off, so you're going to go cut their hand off. In fact, he tells them not to do that. He's very clear in distinguishing what the law has said. And that's that's from what he points out to how they've been taught, which was, you've heard it said. And then he goes back to what his law is. He says, but I say unto you. Christ is the lawgiver. Okay? He is the God of the Old Testament, as well as the New Testament. And he changes not. So he says these things. And then we also have... Um, Christ correcting these guys, when I made mention of the eye for an eye kind of deal, for private revenge, and vengeance is the Lord's. That's not ours, okay? Bringing justice, well, the Lord's going to do that too, but men are to carry out that justice. Christ condemned the false teaching of revenge, okay? He says, whoever therefore breaks one of the commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 19. But he upheld the law, even the death penalty. He upheld that. Why? Because that's a just punishment for a certain number of sins, which are violations of the law. So what do we know? We know in Exodus, we've been told, not to murder. However, let's take a look at something. This is Exodus chapter 22. And I want you to notice, he's laying out different things here uh, that, are, that are going on. But he says this, and this is in verse 2. If a thief be found breaking up and be smitten that he die, there shall no blood be shed for him. But if the sun be risen upon him, there shall be blood shed for him, for he should make full restitution. If he have nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. So you got a guy, a burglar. This is the difference between like the burglar who comes in at night and the thief who comes in by day. The guy who comes in by night, it's dark. You don't know. You take whatever weapon you got. You got a machete or an axe or whatever you got there, or a club, and you... Whack the guy and you kill him. No harm, no foul. The guy, the bad guy is gone. And um, yeah, that's the end of it. But if it's the daytime and you can see the guy, then you're to see that you don't shed his blood as best you can. I mean, unless he's going to attack you. Um, and you hold him and then he's to pay restitution for what he was stealing. And if he can't do that, He's to be sold for his theft. Now, the idea is he is to go work off whatever it is that he had stolen or was trying to steal 
usually with interest, if you will, or there's a there's a penalty. I hate using the term interest there, but there's a penalty that gets applied. So he has to pay that. Okay. That's one instance here. There are others, though. Um, for instance, some people say, oh, you know, like what we read here from the Southern Baptist guy, Mr. Leatherwood or Leather, yeah, Mr. Leatherwood. Mr. Leatherwood is falling into the foolishness of what the writer of Proverbs warns against. And this comes from Proverbs 25 and verse 26. A righteous man falling down before the wicked is as a troubled fountain and a corrupt spring. Brent Leatherwood and those in the Southern Baptist Convention who are pushing what he's talking about are exactly that right there. They are falling down before the wicked. They are a troubled fountain and they are a corrupt spring. No, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. And you say, well, why are you on this so much, Tim? What I mean, don't we have other things to talk about? There's CBDCs and there's, you know, what's going on in the elections and there's a, all this stuff. You know, there's time for all that stuff to deal with. These attacks on the right to keep in arms are going on daily, every day. Not just at the federal level. They're going on in your state, friend. These are attacks that are going on. And these are people, again, I point back, I hold up the laws that they make. Like the Pharisees, they make their own laws that they want to impose on you, but they do not follow them. They are hypocrites in that. But they want to take your guns. Jesus told us, that if we love him, we keep his commandments, John 14, 15. We're also told in 1 Timothy, and this is talking, the, the, whole, the whole context here is about widows. Look at it. Honor widows that are widows indeed. If any, man, if any widow have children and nephews, let them learn first to show piety at home. In other words, the guys at home, they're the ones to look after them. By the way, going to have to stop here a second. We're going to go over just a little bit today. Uh, so if you want to catch that, sonsoflibertymedia.com uh, or beforeitsnews.com, top of the page there. Or you can get on our Rumble channel at Sons of Liberty Radio Live, and uh, you can finish this up with us. Bradley will be with you at 3 o'clock Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, sonsoflibertymedia.com, and then we'll be back with you in the morning. Lord willing, we're going to have Mason Goodnight, the deputy who was fired because he stood against the transdelusional policies of the sheriff's office. Don't miss it. All right, I want to welcome everybody coming over from Red State Talk Radio. And uh, let's just pick this up, you know, where we were here in 1 Timoth Timothy chapter 5. It says, Let them show piety at home to requite their parents, for that is good and acceptable before God. Now she that is a widow indeed and desolate trusteth in God and continueth in supplications and prayers night and day because she's dependent upon God for her sustenance. But she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. So he makes a distinction between younger widows and older widows. And in another passage, he speaks of young, those who, ha, who are younger widows. He says, you need to go get married again and continue to have children and rule the home and do all that kind of stuff. You know, the, 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 the duties of the woman. You need to do that. But if you're older and they would get of a 60 years of age, 
One, if you've got sons that can take care of you, let them do it. Don't don't let don't be a burden on the church. But if you don't have that, then the church is to look after them, much like they did in Acts chapter seven, where they got deacons for the first time, and the deacons were there. They had been appointed mainly for the Hellenistic Jews uh, who didn't have anybody taking care of their widows. And so this was the job of the deacons. The deacons was not to run the church. The job of the deacons was to serve. In fact, the term diakonos literally means to serve tables. They're, they're to be the servants. And so they were there to take care of the widows. And so this is the context of what Paul is talking about. And he said, And these things give in charge that they may be blameless. But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath, listen to this, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Incredible. If he doesn't provide for his own. Now here in the context, he's talking about widows. But what about the protection for widows? If a man doesn't have the ability to protect against widows, if he doesn't have the ability to protect um uh, uh, protect the widows against those who would do them harm. He doesn't have it, obviously, to do it for his own family, does he? I think that all men who have the ability to get a weapon, at least one, to defend their home and those in it, is not carrying out their duty before God. They're not. The keeping of arms is for defense. It is not for murder. It is not for robbery. It is not to violate the law. It is to do your duty before God. Okay? It is to do your duty before the Lord. And I, you know, I've been in situations when we used to install alarm systems. We used to go into some of these, uh, these widows' homes. And, you know, it was really sad in some of the cases because the whole time we're working, some of these little old ladies would be sitting there in their rocking chair listening to these false teachers on TV. At the time, Benny Hinn, Paul Crouch, Kenneth Copeland, Kenneth Hagan, I can't even remember some of the other guys' names. Anyway, they'd just be sitting there listening to it, and it'd just make me sick the whole time I'm working. And I remember one of the ladies, she, I said, um, you know, I just asked her, I said, well, do you have a, do you have a gun in the house? You know, that, you know, you're, you're kind of in a section of, of town here that's kind of unsavory. And she goes, oh, no, the Lord will look after me. And don't get me wrong. I know the Lord will look after widows. He will. Bible says he will. But it's this, it's this disconnect, right, to where people want to say, well, he'll do this for me. But I have the ability to do these things here for myself, and I won't do them. Matthew chapter 4, you guys remember Jesus was tempted, right? Of the devil. In verse 6, he says, And saith unto him, or excuse me, then uh, verse 5, Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city, and saith him on a pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. And Jesus said, It is written again, 
thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. I don't, I think it's tempting God when we just say, well, the Lord's going to just protect me and I'm not going to go and get the ability to defend myself and my family. I think it is. Especially knowing the peril of today, the perils of today. We should be those men who arm ourselves. We have a duty before God, and that's why we do it. So we're to provide. We're to provide protection. This is another thing that goes to, you know, when I'm hearing Leatherwood talk about this with the schools and stuff, I'm like, why? You know, of course, that's a, that's a I guess, a Christian school there in the church that's been established at Covenant uh, Presbyterian Church, and that's all fine and dandy. And apparently they did have armed security there. But they sought to get the people out of the building first, which is great. You, you want to you protect the people at whatever ways you can. And they will do that for some of those. But don't forget this. That while I'm speaking of these things, I don't mean you do it apart from the Lord. What does David tell us in Psalm 46.1? He says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of need. What else does he say? Psalm 144.1, He is the one who trains my hand for war and my fingers for battle. Now, I know a lot of modern churches don't want to preach these texts, but they're there. And they didn't mean them in a spiritual sense. They didn't. The Bible calls Jesus a man of war. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty straightforward and serious stuff. So what happens when we get to, to, to government? Well, we read it out of um, Genesis chapter 9, how they're to deal with those who take another's life. We see in Romans 13 how we're to live under the king, King Jesus, and how that government is his. And any man who's going to try to impose something that is not the law of God, he is a tyrant. He is to be a minister for good. He's not to be a minister of evil. If he's a minister for evil, then he has come out from the umbrella of the protection of the Lord Jesus and therefore is subject to the law coming down upon him himself. I want to ask you something. Well, Jesus did away with that. Jesus did away with this. Jesus did, really? Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday. When is that? throughout all human history and before anything was made. Yesterday, today, at that time, first century, and forever. He's not changing. He's immutable. He doesn't change. He's not changed his mind about his law. He's not changed his mind about his gospel. He's not changed his mind about the words he spoke to the people there in the first century that we draw application for him for in our lives today. He's not changed about that. Malachi 3.6, I the Lord, I am the Lord, I do not change. I don't change. 
And yet we have people constantly trying to tell us the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. No, he's not. No, he's not. And the Old Testament tells us who the Christ is, what he's going to be doing. I mean, we, we read from this the other day, Luke uh, chapter 20, 24, where after his resurrection, Jesus took the scriptures and he opened up their understanding and he says, all that's written in Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, they speak about me. The Old Testament's about Christ. The New Testament's about Christ. He's the pinnacle of human history. And we, we have to get these things correct in order to understand how we're to use these things and how we're to function and do our duties as men. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Rights, the term just means authorities or liberties that we have. They're not to be infringed by government because we have a duty before God to do with those rights. We have those rights to do our duties. We have those freedoms and liberties to do our duties that God has given us. And when government inf tries to infringe upon that, they keep us from doing our duties and they enslave us in the process. And then you recall the night before his betrayal, Jesus is speaking with his disciples, Luke twenty-two thirty-six, And what does he tell them? Then said he, actually, let's just back up here just so you understand why he's saying it. Again, this is Luke 22, beginning at verse 35. He's already told Peter that, you know, he's going to deny him before the cock crows three times. And he said unto them, this is Jesus, when I sent you without purse and script and shoes, lacked ye anything? Remember, he sent them out by themselves, two by two, to go and preach the gospel and to cast out demons and heal the sick and all that stuff. And they came back and they were, wow, man, even the demons are subject to us. And he goes, eh, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that your names are written in the, Lamb, in the Lamb's book of life. And they said nothing. We, we, didn't, we didn't lack anything when you sent us out. You provided for us through the people that we ministered to or whoever was making provision for them. You provided for us. And then he said unto them, but now, it's not that he didn't do it before to, to kind of teach them a lesson. You can go out and, I, and I'm going to care for you. But now, he that hath the purse, let him take it. And likewise, his script. So once he told them to try to train them, this is part of his training of them. If you had a go without a purse, go without a script, go without shoes. Did you lack anything? Nope. Well, now take a purse. Let him take it. And likewise, his script. And he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. And the sword he's got in mind here is not like, um, you know, your William Wallace kind of sword. It's more like a small dagger or knife. That's the idea that he's got. And so people immediately point, yeah, but, but Peter pulled out his sword. And he's this inept swordsman aims for the high priest, you know, little guy there to cut his head off and gets an ear. And Jesus has to heal the ear and he has to tell Peter, put your sword back. One who lives by the sword will die by the sword. 
That was where that whole scenario was coming from. And why was he doing that? Because G Peter never got it through his head, and neither did the other disciples for that matter, that Jesus had told them over and over and over and over and over again what his purpose was. And he told them, going to Jerusalem, I'm going to go here, they're going to flog me, I'm going to be delivered up, they're going to crucify me, they're going to bury me, and guess what? The third day I'll rise again. And they just could not get that. Why? Because they were looking for a kingdom like unto Rome that would destroy Rome and raise up the Jews and all of this other stuff. And there was going to be pomp and splendor. And Jesus told them what his kingdom was like. He says, doesn't come like that. The kingdom is in you. It's in you. doesn't come with sight. You're not looking around seeing a kingdom. His kingdom is in you. That's what he said. So what are we dealing with here? Well, as I read to you before, one of the interesting things here is what we had at the first in our history lesson. And that was as soon as these wicked men started to try to write unjust laws, they put a stop to it. We not only let them write them, we let them sign them into pretended law. And then we let them use agents of the state to enforce them, to enforce unjust laws. And then we're propagandized to applaud those guys when they enforce unjust laws. We've been so propagandized that we'll take the politics, or I see polit people uh, ignore what the politicians say that is unlawful, and they'll give an excuse for it because he's got their jersey on. Oh, how far are we from those men of the past? And so you say, well, why are you bringing all this up today? Again. This is happening not only in D.C., this is happening in many states in our union. And the attacks are in every state, every single one of them. <laughs> what are men to do? What are men to do? Men are to resist. Nope, we're not doing it. We're not going along with you guys. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you. We have got to get our act together as men to come together under the Lord, make it a time of discipleship, but we have got to come together and learn how we're to defend our communities. Even our own homes, you know what happens if the state shows up. You as a man are outgunned and outnumbered a lot. And you can talk all you want to like Charlton Heston. You can pry it out of my cold, dead hands. That's exactly what they will do. I would rather be on the end that learns to foment what the Constitution says, the militia. But I'd much rather just say, these are the men of the community. Let's get back men to having fellowship in the community. Let's get back to those campfire times where we encourage one another. I, I was talking with my friend Bill, the truck driver theologian, the other day, and one of the things he pointed out, he says, you know, encouragement, it is to impart 
courage. It is to inject courage into another person. Never really thought about it like that. That's what it is. Get around the, the fire. Talk about the problems and then start talking about the solutions and encourage, inject courage into young men especially and into old men alike. Instruct them with the Word of God. Bring history in it to teach them. History teaches us things too. We can learn some things from history that go right along with what Scripture says. And we're going to have to do it. If we don't do it, we're going to be destroyed. We're just going to be destroyed. That is the direction all of this is going. And so me and I highly encourage you, you know, whether you agree with everything or not, or whether you even give a support there or not, I'd encourage you, go to Tactical Civics, learn that history there, learn what your duty is, and then seek to start implementing it there in your own community. We need that. Hold on to your arms, whatever they be. Don't comply. Resist the tyrants. And uh, the Lord, I believe the Lord would give us victory. You guys have a great day. Bradley be with you at 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, SonsOfLibertyMedia.com. And then we'll be back with you in the morning. Lord willing, we're going to have uh, Mason Goodnight. I'm going to see if we're going to interview him today. So it'll be a pre-record. But you don't want to miss that. Here's a guy who's actually done it. Been in the system. Stood up to the system, system fired him, and uh, he does not mince words about the gospel, about the scriptures, and their direction for life and godliness. So join us here again, 6 a.m., bright and early, Lord willing. Talk to you then. See you.